Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Please listen carefully. 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 Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. I hope you're well as the calendar has turned to the month of October. I'm a huge fan of the autumn season. The crisp weather, the falling leaves puts me in the best mood. I actually watched the new Hocus Pocus movie, the new sequel, with my family this past weekend. Really enjoyed it. Recommend it for you if you're looking to expand your Halloween movie offerings. Also, in some interesting personal news, uh, my wife hates that I'm an old soul. I listen to classical music, I tell dad jokes, and I also buy things like cuckoo clocks. That's right, we're now the proud new owners of a cuckoo clock that has a prominent position in our kitchen. Uh, I think it's awesome. (laughs) I get that really warm and nostalgic feeling when I see it. And my wife, I think she shudders when she sees it. But, you know, to her credit, she she gave it a prominent spot uh, in the kitchen. So if you're like me, shoot us an email at connorsforum.org and tell us what makes you an old soul. And uh, I'll read it on the air. All right. Well, enough about me. Let's get to the show. We've got two interesting segments for you today. In segment two... We're going to be joined by True Tamplin. He runs the digital marketing agency UpDigital, created the finance website Finance Strategists, and is on a mission to make sure that American children are taught a solid foundation of financial literacy in schools. We'll hear all about what he has to say on the topic in segment two. But first up, we have Denver Brunsman, a historian at George Washington University who specializes in the politics and social history of the American Revolution, early American Republic, and British Atlantic world. He's here to share his insights on the life and career of George Washington, as well as his general reflections on the study of history and its place in the modern university. Professor Brunsman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. All right. So you've got all sorts of great insight into early American history that I think a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in. Um, But I guess what I want to start with is, you know, history is an ongoing profession. There's always fresh insights. You're always learning more. You're always doing research, right? And this is never a dead topic. So what are some of the new insights people are gleaning about Washington uh, currently in your profession? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when I came to George Washington University in 2012, it was actually to teach this class on George Washington at Mount Vernon. And some of my friends uh, told me, you know, what is there to do? What is it? What can you learn? <laughs> what new is there? And it's all been done. It, yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, you know, I immersed myself in Washington literature and, and I realized very quickly that there actually was quite a bit to do. And then there was a real division between uh, popular, you might say, amateur historians who who often do excellent work, 
um, and, you know, trained academics who tend to ask different questions. And so a lot of the same things have been written over and over again in a lot of these popular books. Uh, but I think a lot of uh, scholars have, have tripped upon a lot of new information recently, uh, especially in the realm of slavery. Uh, Mount Vernon has uh, arguably the best uh, records of any 18th century uh, slave plantation, uh, certainly in North America. And, you know, so people like uh, Mary Thompson, who's the official historian of Mount Vernon, uh, she's written a, a, a book that's very comprehensive in terms of, you know, the subject. Uh, Bruce Ragsdale, another scholar, wrote a book uh, called Washington at the Plow that really explores this issue for Washington, you know, how he obsessed over uh, farming and and the labor that he used. And, you know, he ultimately decided that that slavery wasn't the best way uh, to carry out the scientific form of agriculture that he wanted to do. And so he, he really felt stuck with the institution. So, you know, he ultimately freed his slaves in his will. And Ragsdale argues that this was as, as much for efficiency purposes as as moral reasons. And, you know, maybe the most famous uh, of these books written recently is uh, by a scholar named Erica Armstrong Dunbar uh, about an enslaved seamstress at Mount Vernon named Ona Judge. Uh, it's called Never Caught. And it, it really shows, I think, another side of, of Washington on this issue that while he might have, you know, personally uh, turned against slavery, um, he still considered, you know, these people his property. And when they ran away, uh, he didn't like it. And he, he pursued them, as, as Dunbar says, relentlessly. Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, this is just one example, but I think there's a lot of areas in which uh, we're still learning things about the first president. So you've talked a little bit about Washington's history with slavery. Let's talk about his treatment of Native Americans. One of our listeners, Mark Braza, actually wrote into the show asking this very question. So I'll put the question to you. Do you have any insights you can share about Washington's history with and treatment of Native Americans? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think in, the, in terms of Native Americans, George Washington grew up at a time in the colonial period um, when there weren't a lot of Native people around him. So he was, he was you know, somewhat inexperienced, uh, you know, dealing with um, Indigenous people. And, and so once he becomes an officer in the British Army uh, in the uh, 1750s, uh, he was sort of in this world in which Native people had incredible leverage. Uh, over European empires, uh, and and so I, I think maybe the best thing that can be said about Washington is that is that he grew over time. Um, but I think he he certainly I think underestimated Native people back in those early days uh, during the Revolutionary War. The majority of Native Americans uh, sided with Britain, and and so I think it's fair to say that you know George Washington made war on Native Americans. Uh, in fact, when he was president. Uh, the uh, Seneca people wrote to Washington and they said that during the war, they had given him the name town destroyer uh, because of what he had done. Uh, and then, you know, during his presidency, I think there's a there's a fair debate among historians of whether Washington uh, is different than presidents that came later, especially people like uh, Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, who had very expansionist uh, policies and really policies of removal. Um, I think Washington also was an expansionist. I think he hoped for a somewhat more rational process of taking Indian land, involved treaties and, and uh, their consent to the extent possible. Um, but, 
at the end of the day, I think he, you know, I think he set a precedent that was continued by future presidents of of taking native land. So um, on that question, I don't think he he rates uh, uh, particularly high. Yeah, and I, I kind of left off this point from the previous question, so I'll, I'll briefly revisit it and then we'll move on. Um, but you say that he freed his slaves later in life. Um, and again, we don't want to justify slavery at all, but I, I do just want to understand his thinking at the time. So does that mark a break in his thinking on slavery? Does his, his thinking evolve over time? Like what were his earlier views? Yeah, Washington definitely evolved on the issue of slavery. I think not fully and not in a way that we would uh, certainly want, but but he sure. did he did evolve. Um you know, up to the up to the American Revolution, I think one could say he was an average Virginia slaveholder, um, uh, which you know is to say not 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 good. He's he, as you said, he's a slaveholder. Right. Um, but during the revolution, you know, he did change, and I think there was a lot of reasons why uh, he got out of Virginia. He spent most of the war um, in the North. Um, he saw the heroism of, of African Americans um, in battle. Uh, the spirit of liberty was in the air. Uh, he had the cast of Hamilton barking in his ear, right? He had <laughs> Alexander Hamilton <laughs> and Marquis de Lafayette and, and, you know, John Lawrence, others uh, who were against the institution. And so, uh, you know, from his private correspondence, we can tell that he turned uh, privately against the institution. Right? He pledges to the Marquis de Lafayette that he will not purchase or sell, you know, more people. Um, and he more or less uh, holds to that. Um, but he never does anything publicly. He never spends any political capital on the issue. And I think that's what's so frustrating. And so I think that private evolution, uh, the, you know, the, the results of that was him freeing his, his slaves and in his will. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, a, a positive. Uh, he's the only one of seven slaveholding presidents uh, to do that. Um, and so I think the best thing one can say is that Washington, is on some level, envisioned a multiracial, multicultural America. He provided some modest means for the people that you know he, he freed in his in his will. Uh, but again, you know, we of course wish that the person who probably had more political capital than anybody else in American history right. would right. have maybe taken a, a few risks and done done more to end the institution. So uh, right now we're seeing. Really, I mean, for all the good that people might argue about political parties, we're seeing a lot of the really poisonous and toxic impacts of political parties and tribalism and negative polarization, all those sorts of things on our, our society and our politics. And much of your work focuses on really the political career of Washington, right? So, um, you know, I, th I think a lot of people think of Washington as not really being in favor of political parties and maybe some people around him not being in favor of it. But they developed pretty quickly upon him being a president, right? So talk about his views about political parties and, and how they came about and why. Yeah, this is one of the real paradoxes of Washington's administration. You know, he, he becomes president. Uh, he's against political parties and, and, and really everybody was. Uh, they had looked at what had happened in Britain with sort of the traditional alignment of the Whigs and the Tories. And, and they thought that this had corrupted uh, politics and government in Britain. And maybe it had been one reason for Britain's policies of the 1760s and 70s that had caused the revolution. So, you know, the spirit of the revolution is, is small R Republican, uh, you know, basically selfless service to the Republic. Um, and political parties, especially in Washington's view, were seen as the opposite of that. They were seen as self-interested, that parties were in it for themselves. 
So the problem he faces is that when he becomes president, his, his own cabinet <laughs> fractures, uh, you know, famously fractures with his Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton going one direction and his Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson going the other. And I think it shows you know, the, the leadership qualities of Washington that he was able to basically maintain the trust of those two factions as long as he could. But eventually it was impossible to keep you know, the dam from breaking and, and parties do form, uh, you know, uh, really in his, in his first term and especially in his, in his second term. Um, and I, I tend to believe, and, and I'm, you know, in some ways, uh, I might be a little bit of an outlier among Washington scholars on this. I think he's pretty partisan by the end of his presidency and, and certainly into his retirement. Um, and you can see that even in a document like the farewell address, which we celebrate for him warning against political parties. But of course, parties had already started by that point. Uh, and, and so in saying that, in a way, he's basically telling the political opposition, the Democratic Republicans who were following Thomas Jefferson, that they didn't really have a right to exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, you know, that was, you know, and Alexander Hamilton helped him with the farewell address. So it's kind of a form of hardball of politics. And, you know, some political scientists and historians use a, a useful term for this era. Uh, it's that these parties were proto-parties. They weren't full parties because full political parties need to recognize the right of the opposition to exist. You know, this is traditionally called the loyal opposition. Uh, and that certainly didn't exist in the 1790s and then into the early 1800s. I mean, they're, they're, they're out for total destruction <laughs> of the other side. <laughs> and, and so I think your question, you know, it comes back to your question in our own times, and in some ways, we've come, you know, full circle on this, that I, you know, our own politics is very broken. And I think this is one reason why I, I think we've forgotten how to behave responsibly as, as partisans, that, you know, there, there are certain lines you don't cross, uh, that you don't, you know, question the, the motives necessarily of, of your opponents, that, you know, that you trust that they are looking out for the good of the, the country as much as you are, and, and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, and so I think, you know, we can learn a lot from this era. Can you talk a little bit about, before we move on to some other, uh, questions about him, I, I want to talk about your profession in particular. Can you talk a little bit about, so, you know, when you, when you're going back through various kinds of, uh, historical records, right? So you've got personal correspondence, maybe where you're being a little more, uh, truthful in journals, that kind of stuff, you know, public speeches where you're certainly framing things in a way that you want them to be received, Right. All of this happening, of course, within a language where words are being used very differently, right? Like, I mean, if, if, if I were to read the documents you're reading, I would come away with a very different idea of what they're saying, right? So, can you talk a little bit about how you make sense of the language, the different culture of the time and being able to acclimate yourself to that to produce a valid historical record, but also knowing that some of this stuff is just framing, right? Like, I mean, if I looked back today at some of what our politicians are saying today, I would say, Oh, that's not what they really meant. Right? Like, that's not a true reflection of their of their personal beliefs. So, can you talk a little bit about that work that you do as a historian? Yeah, it's 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 a good question because I think that um, you know it's often said one mark of a of a fully educated person is that they can get a joke from a certain era or or say a political cartoon, <laughs> and, and that's kind of what you're saying is that you don't, you almost have to be immersed in an era to really pick up on all the little small signals and, and documents and. And one thing I challenge my students to do in this course that I teach at Mount Vernon is to try to distinguish between when Washington is being truly modest and when he's being false, falsely modest, <laughs> which was performative and something that was required uh, in that particular era. 
Um, so you really do have to uh, read the sources um, closely, and and the language can be tough, even for someone who spends you know every day with this, these words. You have to read over them, you know, again and again. You, you have to you know puzzle over them and really you know try to figure out uh, what what somebody is saying. And then I think you know in the approach that historians take, I think ideally it's um, very comprehensive. So I think. You know, especially in my period where there's a limited number of documents, there's a lot of documents, but there's, you know, at a certain point, it, you know, it's finite. You could, for any given subject, you can, you know, generally look at everything uh, possible. Um, and I think that's what we should do. I think historians have a much different job than, say, a lawyer, uh, an attorney going back through, say, a historical record is trying to build a, a case, a singular case, uh, you know, to support a, a a single argument. And of course, some historians do that, but I think that's bad history. I think good history is is trying to look at everything, trying to incorporate all of it, try to account for the complexities and nuances and, you know, and even the areas in which you might have a particular argument, but, you know, the exceptions to that and why, you know, why, why your particular view might not be 100% <laughs> correct. So, I, I try to be as honest as I can in that regard. So let, let's talk a little bit about how uh, Washington was viewed both in his own time and uh, since. So let's start with his own time. You mentioned him, you know, the modesty. He's well known as being a very stiff figure, right? Um, you know, how popular was he at the time? How was he thought of by uh, the general population at the time? Yeah, Washington's really kind of the the rock star of his <laughs> of his era when you look at media from that period and, and in terms of, you know, how much people are written about, how much their words are followed. And I think a lot of this has to do with the way the Revolutionary War ended. Um, you know, at the end of the, the war in December of 1783, Washington famously gave up his commission. Uh, he resigned, you know, as commander of American forces. Uh, and this is something he had always said he was going to do. But when he actually did it, um, it made his, you know, very large impact. And this is something I try to convey to students that we're always looking for what somebody does, you know, what do they do that, you know, is their legacy? And, and in this regard, I think maybe the most important thing Washington did is something uh, that he didn't do. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't stay on. He didn't stick around. He, he tried to leave uh, and he did leave. And, 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 um, you know, this became a real phenomenon in the, in the press and, and, and sort of in the enlightenment era that this was upheld as, you know, the great example of, of Republican virtue that Washington had not acted in his self-interest, but he had acted in the interest of his his country. And, you know, that was really the highest political ideal at the time. So I think that moment helps to explain a lot of the rest of his career. And it helps to explain in some ways why he didn't come, you know, why he wasn't eager to become president at first. Uh, when, when he stepped down, he was often compared to the Roman statesman Cincinnatus, uh, this is someone who had done something similar to Washington. He had been a farmer. He had left the plow. He had gone to defend the the republic, and and then had gone back at the end. He had retired to you know his farm. Um, well, Cincinnati never had a second act. <laughs> and Washington, when he had stepped down, you know he felt like he was promising the American people that you know he was done. So a lot of people had to persuade him. Oh no, we really need you back <laughs> again. And then so then I think it's so important that. You know, when he stepped down again at the end of his second term, that you know he's really 
uh, as the historian Joseph Ellis has said, he's, he's a master of exits. <laughs> he leaves again, uh, and you know, and he, and he left on his own terms. And I think that you know, all of this kind of comes together to explain his his significance, his popularity, um, and you know, America was really invented. It's a new country. It didn't have a lot of traditions. It didn't have a common religion. It didn't have a common ethnicity. So that's one reason why the founders, I think, loom so large uh, and, and continue in many ways to do so because um, there wasn't a lot else. I mean, there wasn't a lot else with the country. Um, you know, there's a new constitution, but there's these figures that, that helped to start the country, fought the war, and, and Washington's, you know, really at the top of that list. Now, I don't want to do too much time jumping here like we're in a Christopher Nolan movie, but, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when you say things that kind of pique my interest... And it all piques my interest. But when you say something that kind of, I don't want to forget, I have to ask you the question now. So, uh, you know, you mentioned him um, stepping down and sort of handing over the keys of the kingdom, right? And, and not becoming a tyrant, not becoming a king. And then again, doing it again when he's uh, stepping down as president. Um, many people, left and right, you know, I see people like Bill Crystal, I see people like Noam Chomsky saying this. Uh, they, they talk about... Um, in modern American society, so much of what we thought was baked into democracy, it really isn't. And it operates much on the honor code. We thought that there's all these laws and all these rules that tell us how this thing's supposed to operate. And we're finding that, no, if people just decide not to follow the rules and people lose trust in these institutions, they kind of fall apart. And there aren't the guardrails we thought there were. How have you, I mean, as somebody, I would imagine if I were a historian like you, like just being immersed in this, the history of this democratic project you would take so much for granted. And then to see this happen has to be somewhat jarring. Am I wrong in that? No, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> the, the last several years have been uh, incredible in so many ways, but uh, to be a historian and to see, um, you know, how the Republic has evolved <laughs> where we are right now has, has been really fascinating. And, and particularly with the presidency. And, and I think you're, you're absolutely right that the, a lot of these things that we call democratic norms, are, are things that people like Washington just did, you know, things like stepping down at the end of his second term. I mean, that that's a precedent that holds, you know, all the way until the crisis of World War II. And then, you know, it's now in the Constitution, it's the 22nd Amendment. Um, and so, you know, there's there were certain flashpoints for me. So, um, one that maybe people might not even recall, there was a certain point in, in uh, President Trump's uh, term in which he... Uh, said really kind of off the cuff um, to reporters, he said, you know, Article 2 lets me do anything. And, he, you know, he got a lot of blowback for that, uh, as he should have. But at the same time, there was, you know, a strange kind of truth in that. <laughs> Article 2 is, a, is, is pretty sloppy and not completely clear. I mean, it does leave open all kinds of questions. And, and you know, in, in Washington, I think, uh, took the first stab at, at really answering those questions, what the president does, what are the president's powers, what are the limits of those powers. But as you say, a lot of these things are not uh, written down. They're not, you know, um, they're not official, you know, say law or, or even, you know, in the Constitution, supreme law. So, um, so yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. We have learned that it does require uh, our system to work. I think the, the good behavior of the, of the leaders is essential. 
So, so we've talked about uh, how he was treated, you say, as a rock star, right? And people begging him to come uh, back for a second act, for an encore presentation, take those lighters out, right? Um, <laughs> but, but since then, the, the historical judgment of his presidency. So I'm assuming at least some of the greatness comes from the fact that he was the first and he set some of the precedent, right? Um, but, but, you know, how much more of that was earned and why? How much more of that um, sort of bestowing him as a great president was earned and, and tell us why? Yeah, this is something I really uh, thought a lot about because when I began working on Washington, I, I I think I had a healthy skepticism. I thought most of the celebration of him was just because he was the first. <laughs> and I think the more that I got into it, the more that I respected what he had done with the presidency. And there's a term in the literature that's called transformational leadership. Um, and it's used in contrast to transactional leadership. And uh, you know, transformational leadership is inventive, it's creative, it's making, you know, an office or position your own, uh, whereas transactional leadership is essentially carrying out the duties of something. And there's nothing wrong with transactional leadership. We, we absolutely need it. But, um, but Washington is often recognized as a transformational leader of the presidency that, you know, so many precedents, all, you know, from the very start, giving an inaugural address, uh, organizing his executive departments into a cabinet, you know, something that's not in the, in the constitution, um, and, and on and on to the point where I think, you know, even today, if he, if he looked at the office, you know, so many things would be crazy different and weird, <laughs> and everything. but the, the basic sort of structure, the organization of the thing, I think he, you know, in some, in many ways would recognize. Um, and so that was not inevitable. I mean, it, we could do a little pub trivia here where people could imagine, you know, who's the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, that happens to be John Jay. And then you would ask, well, who, who's the transformational leader of the Supreme Court? It wouldn't be Jay. It would be John Marshall. And so, so I think Washington, you know, really left his mark on this, on the, on the office of the presidency in, you know, a num- number of ways. Let's talk about uh, his military records. So, um, you noted to me in an email that he actually lost more uh, battles than he won, but he's considered uh, a great military leader. So, explain this seeming contradiction to me. <laughs> yeah, so Washington, uh, I, I mentioned before. I mean, man, he's he's a master of uh, of sort of having his side of th- things come out, right? <laughs> he, he loses these battles, but he's. I got to learn this quality. <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> but he's still the great military leader. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so I think, you know, in military history and, and you know, just military uh, uh, work in general, um, it's often divided into tactics versus strategy, right? And I would say that, you know, Washington is not the greatest tactician, which is something that often leads to sort of winning or losing battles. Um, you know, not terrible. He, he, he does sort of make a lot of good decisions, uh, but, he, but he makes a lot of bad ones too. But in terms of strategy... You know, I think he understood the big picture. He understood what was at stake. And, you know, they understood that the United States was, you know, America was creating a country, uh, that that was the, the main goal of, of the war. So, you know, he didn't take a win at any cost uh, attitude. You know, I sometimes ask my students, you know, why didn't uh, George Washington just go all Che Guevara and just, you know, fight a guerrilla war. Cause today looking at, you know, what the Pentagon today would call asymmetrical wars, um, that would be the easiest way to, to win. And, you know, he did a little bit of that by, by trying to avoid the British in sort of traditional line battles. But at the same time, he wanted a European style army. He wanted legitimate, um, victories. 
And so I think he really understood what the 19th century military theorist Clausewitz, you know, famously said. He, you know, he said that um, war is politics by other means. And, and for Washington, that was true. And I think he saw that sort of the way the war was fought, you know, and again, things like stepping down at the end, that that was critical to securing the, the political objective, uh, which was the whole point of the war. So I want to ask you, um, you know, we're, we're in a really politically fraught moment right now for a variety of reasons, um, but it seems like every aspect of society has some sort of culture war component to it. And certainly the, the teaching and the studying of history is not uh, exempt from that. So, you know, uh, my own field of, of the social sciences, and I'm a sociologist in particular, but um, when I see people criticize us publicly about something that somebody's written, oftentimes it's, it's justified, right? Like something they've written has gone too far. They've gotten it over their skis. They've overgeneralized something. But then the, the the discourse around it becomes very dishonest, right? It's like, well, this is what everybody is doing and everything in the classroom is dishonest. So, like, no, this is one person, right? And I, I often think it's just a, a matter of misunderstanding, right? Like if somebody came into my classroom, they would see that I deconstruct this person's article and I say, here's what is empirically supported and here's what's not, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about being a historian at this moment and what some of those tensions are and maybe what some more familiarity might help people feel better about in your profession. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it is a wild time, right. To be, to be in the Academy and, uh, and, and to being, to doing history. Um, you know, I did some media um, following January 6th and the January 6th anniversary and people asked for historical comparisons and, and, and I said, well, there's a big difference from the 1850s. We don't have, one major issue like slavery driving us apart. But, but as you said, it's almost like a, a death by, you know, a thousand or even a million cuts. It's, <laughs> everything is politicized. Everything is, everything is, is an issue and including uh, the past and, and how it's interpreted. And so, you know, this class that I teach at Mount Vernon for the first several years that I taught it, you know, to get my students to think critically, um, they came in with a very, very positive view of George Washington. And I kind of, you know, I had to, push them to think about things like we've talked about with Native American slavery, you know, areas in which, you know, he didn't even live up to his own values. But in, in recent years, it's been the opposite challenge. It's actually to get my students um, to think about the positive legacies of George Washington and the founders because they're, they come in with um, such a negative view. And, and, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the, 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 the term canceling and you know, cancel culture and that kind of thing. Um, but it does happen, right? It happens in, in the present day, but it also happens to historical figures. And, and you know, and, and of course, some people deserve <laughs> to be fully canceled. But I guess my goal with my students is to that, for them to recognize the complexity of, of human nature, of human behavior, uh, the nuance, and, and maybe reach a place where they can appreciate, you know, some of the positive things that somebody might have done even while absolutely fully rejecting uh, the negative and, and harmful things. And um, I've, I've been very inspired by Christopher Jackson, the, the actor who played George Washington in the original production of Hamilton. And, you know, he's talked very movingly about how difficult it is to play uh, a, a slaveholder, an enslaver uh, from that period. And, and you know, the point that he reached was um, to not, accept that uh you know he had to understand it uh but it, it continues to this day to reject that but to also see some of the positive things that washington might have done so i think we have to do we have to do both things and uh, we have to do both things fully um and and honestly and 
And so I hope uh, that's somewhere that our, our society can come around to where we can, you know, have these conversations honestly. And, and as you say, with, you know, the full evidence, the full information and not just have, um, you know, knee jerk attacks uh, on each other. I run into that problem that one of the, something that you mentioned about sort of justifying behavior, I run into that problem a lot, especially in the social sciences. And, and I realize that, you know, we're, we're not the same exact uh, tradition in terms of our research and, and our, the questions we ask and those sorts of things. But I think something we similarly do in the social sciences compared to uh, history is that we're not trying to justify, we're trying to explain and understand the, the human condition, understand why societies move forward, move backwards, et cetera. And but that is one of the roadblocks you can run into with people is when you say, I think this thing is happening because of these inputs. Oh, well, now you're justifying that behavior. No, I just want to understand it and maybe prevent it <laughs> from happening in the future, right? <laughs> yeah. No, you described that so well. I, I, I do workshops for K through 12 teachers and I say, there's a fine line between explaining and excusing. And I, yeah. I tell them, you know, I know that you might feel this way because of your, a lot of your curriculums and some of them might tell you to do this, but your, your job is not to justify, defend, you know, excuse past behaviors, but you do need to explain and understand, right? And, and your students need to understand the difference of those things that just because you understand why someone did something, it doesn't, you know, explain it away or justify it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that, I, I agree. That's one of those areas where I think uh, our society uh, has, has, some, has some room to, uh, to grow. So, uh, I'll ask you a few questions to wrap up here, but um, I, I find this is an interesting question to ask some people, not everybody, but I think you would be an interesting one. Uh, I think sometimes the, the study of a certain topic tells you something about a person, right? So, um, I study social inequality because I grew up in an area that was really rich and um, I felt like, you know, we people were kind of looked down upon and a little bit judgmental and that led me to think about, well, why does inequality exist, Right. So what, what brought you to the study of Washington? How did it happen? Um, what interested in you in it? What, what does it say about you that you, you chose this topic? Yeah, great question. I, I sometimes joke that my whole, my whole life is kind of surrounded and revolves around this guy that I live in his, his hometown. I live in Alexandria, Virginia. <laughs> I teach at his university. <laughs> Modern teaches. kids would say he lives rent-free in your head. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. So, um, so I became uh, a historian of this, of this period because I was, I was actually quite passionate about uh, getting to the roots of these questions we've been talking about, about American politics and, and, and democracy um, I was actually after college. I was an intern at different places in DC. I was a, uh, I was an intern actually in the White House uh, for for Al Gore, um, and this is when the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, <laughs> which was a, a really amazing experience. And, and I didn't know her. She was two years ahead before me, <laughs> but I was there when everything you came were there out. when it was being investigated. <laughs> yeah, Holy yeah, moly. yeah. And so that must a, have been a heady time. Goodness it was a, it was a real low moment, right? And yeah. so I think that. Um, reinforced my desire to maybe go back and figure out the the sort of founding institutions, founding values, and and one thing in doing that is that you you learn that it was pretty ugly in the beginning too, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It, yeah. It's been difficult, but you also find I think some Im impressive things and some things to admire and 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 things that you know I, I try to bring to the public and and you know in mediums like this, and that is that um, you know people like George Washington. Um, I think did get certain things right. I think, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that our country was founded uh, during the Enlightenment, during this, you know, mm -hmm. rational period in which they, you know, recognized uh, religious, you know, liberty, tolerance, um, 
at least in theory, they would say something like all men are created equal. And so, so even if they were hypocrites in carrying out, you know, and executing to say the that, least, yeah. The, yeah, to say the least, the fact they said the words, right. Um, so those, those universal, universal acknowledgement of rights, um, really become, um, something to aspire to for generations of Americans afterwards. And I, I think makes, you know, I think the good things about our country, uh, the combination of, of, people who have maybe been marginalized, left out of that, um, making it a reality, forcing, you know, the issue, but also having that foundation in place, those, those sort of that, that rhetoric of universal liberty to start with. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at in this, uh, in this fraught, in this fraught moment. And, and, you know, sometimes when I students take my class on the American Revolution, they come away pretty disillusioned and they're surprised that, you know, at all the things that went on, but, but I do encourage them to hold on to this, that there are things that I think in our founding era that, that should should give us hope. All right. So uh, there's many more questions I'd like to get to, but uh, I don't want to uh, keep you too long here. So I'll wrap up with this question. But, um, you know, there's great discussion, maybe not at your university, although I can't speak for your university. But in many places of the country, going towards just all profession-driven education, you'll be all about, you know, occupational preparation. Um, and I think there's some value to orienting more of college towards that. But I don't know if it necessarily should be all of that, right? Um, and I think you lose a, a great deal when you lose things like philosophy, when you lose things like history and, and the social sciences. Um, so, so make your case, you know, uh, even somebody coming through who's not going to become a historian, right? They're going to become a... Uh, civil engineer or uh, a, a lawyer or whatever, right? So a nurse, I mean, you, you name the profession. Make your case for uh, the continuing importance of having history be something that people pay attention to as they come through the educational system. Yeah, so I've definitely had the same experience. Um, you know, I went to a, a small liberal arts college. I went to St. Olaf College in Minnesota and, and they had a saying there that, you know, life was more than a livelihood, that they were training uh, you really to be a, a human, to be a person, <laughs> you know, the, the full holistic uh, experience, not necessarily to get a job. Um, and I feel like in many ways in higher education and in many ways, this is a response to society and events and is understandable, but it's, it's, it's really become the opposite of that. It's life is a livelihood <laughs> that, you know, our purpose is, is to train people for jobs. And so, I think I think both things can be accomplished. I don't think it has to be, you know, mutually exclusive. So, so absolutely. I mean, I want to live in a society in which people um, have taken a philosophy class and a history class and and sociology, and they've done these different things, and they've they've seen how people think about the world um, in different ways. And you know, I think that makes for for better citizens. And you know, as we've seen in the in the last several years, I mean, one of the most critical skills in the 21st century is is being able to understand media, to be able to understand and decipher uh, information. And and so many people fail at this task. And I think this is one of the sort of basic tenets of a, of a liberal arts education is, is how to understand uh, information sources, how to process it, how to see how, you know, other people look at it from different disciplines. Uh, so these are all skills. And, and maybe we just have to be more intentional in teaching these things and explaining the that you know this does have real relevance uh to today um and and you know making our society a place that we actually want to live in 
Professor Brunsman, we've really appreciated this conversation. I mean, uh, you know, you talk about different historical periods, different historical figures. Sometimes Americans' eyes will glaze over, but you talk about Washington and they want to hear it. So thank you so much for coming on and giving us some insight into this historical figure. Uh, thanks so much, Lawrence. It's been a lot of fun. Keep, keep doing the good work here. All right, we'll move it along. Next up, we've got True Tamplin. He runs the digital marketing agency Up Digital. He created the finance website Finance Strategists. And as I said at the top of the show, he's on a mission to make sure that American children are taught a solid foundation of financial literacy. True Tamplin, welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Lawrence. All right, so you're here today to talk about something that I'm actually really, really interested in, which is um, something that these sort of non-traditional topics that our educational system maybe isn't doing a great job of teaching our kids. And there's all sorts of, you know, you talk to the average American on the street and they say, kids should know this, kids should know that. And there's varying degrees of agreement about what we should know and we shouldn't know. But I think a lot of people want their kids to know about financial literacy. So uh, before we even dive into that topic, though, so when I say financial literacy, what does that mean to somebody like you? Oh, great question. So financial literacy is I would define it as basic financial knowledge that allows you to make good and wise and informed decisions. And so financial literacy can be as simple as like, how does one even save for retirement or even in assessing your different insurance options or how do I file tax returns? You know, you're just kind of thrown into adulthood, not with this information in your head or being born with it. And so I would define financial literacy as whatever knowledge uh, an individual would need in order to be able to make just sound decisions that apply to their finances. So tell us about this passion of yours and some of the things that you think kids really should know that maybe they don't know as they become adults. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say as it pertains to finances, that I am shocked and amazed that kids don't walk away from the school system with it ingrained in their skulls that I will not spend more than I earn. And I watch, <laughs> I know, like a good rule. <laughs> you, you know, you think it's, uh, you, you know, learned it pretty quick in adulthood. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. We have to learn it in adulthood, which is so funny. And so we busy ourselves with a bunch of information and I'm not knocking any of these subjects. So if you're listening and you're like, wait, that's my heart. Uh, I'm, that's great. I that's great. But you know, I remember learning so much about maybe it's art history or the sciences or whatever. And these are excellent subjects. And I think that Mark Twain said it best that there's no such thing as, uh, boring topic, just in disinterested people. And so I definitely think that there's value to all the things that, that we're learning in school. But I'm just amazed that we don't have like basic financial literacy or things like mantras, like I will not spend more than I earn ingrained in us. And it's the cause of like so many Americans like living paycheck to paycheck or being in debt. Um, so to answer your question, what are some like practical things? I mean, a perfect one would be so you start your first job and you have no clue what retirement is, how to save for it. What are the different like tax savings vehicles that the government, like provisions made by the government for you to save 
for retirement in an incentivized fashion. Things like, I mean, you hear the term 401k as a kid because it's probably in TV shows, but you have no idea that it is an employer-sponsored retirement plan, whereas an IRA individual retirement account is your own retirement plan that you fund, whereas a 401k could either be funded by an employer that might be matched by an employer. Um, there's all these different options and all these different tax implications. It is so useful and pragmatic to have simple knowledge like that. And I explained that in 30 seconds. Um, this does not take a long time to, to cover and ramp up where it's like, cool, now I know. Or even basic insurance options, like I said, like, do I need life insurance? My opinion is if I don't have a life that will be harmed, like my spouse does not work. And so if I were to pass away, um, she would have so much stress and so much burden to cover the cost of my funeral and just living in general, where someone like myself with a... She's not a dependent, we're together, but someone who functions sort of dependently on my income, it's a great decision for me to have life insurance in the unexpected event that I pass away. Or even if I become impaired, where I could have you know insurance relating to my work. You know, The list goes on and on, where I just feel like you just get thrown into the adult world. And oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I have to share this because it's just too funny. Uh, I just saw this like TikTok here recently. It was on financial literacy. And it was like, you know point of view POV when you're 18. And it's like, you're doing your taxes and you're like calling the IRS. And the lady's like, no, you'll be expected to know everything. And then it's like, what if we get it wrong? And then he's like, oh yeah, you'll go to jail. No, that's not true. But um, I just love that it. It's like, well, how do I know what we make? Oh, you'll have to just figure that out on your own. And it's just like, I don't know. I just saw the whole thing. I was like, you know, that's kind of true. Um, anyways, I just, I think it's just sad that we just walk out of like so many years of education without like the right topics that practically equip us in life being talked about. So you've talked about some sort of big uh, skills like doing your taxes and picking out insurance and uh, saving for retirement. Um, what are some of the sort of maybe day-to-day things you want people to have? I mean, like, you know, balancing a checkbook, those sorts of things. What sort of the um, nuts and bolts kinds of skills you think kids should come out of school with? Great question. I mean, the first one when you're just getting started is the simple ability to create a budget. And it would take no time for a professor to simply show you how to log into your bank account, click on your bank statement, export it into an Excel spreadsheet. Whoa, getting a little scary here. And like write a sum formula. Or I think you can literally highlight the cells in Excel and it will sum it for you. Or you could see practically, okay... Let's just take the last three months of my costs and let's just add up month one, month two, and month three. Cool. I spend this much money each month. And you can, and I do think it's very useful to, uh, as Dave Ramsey likes the the zero sum budget where it's like every dollar gets assigned. Um, zero based budgeting, I think it's called ZBB, where it's like, cool, I now know what I'm spending And even having that vision and that clarity is something that most people do not have. They actually don't know if you ask them, how much do you spend on, you know, coffee each month? They'll typically give you a wrong answer just because they haven't done that very 15 minute, very simple exercise of just looking at what you're spending and where. I actually find that coffee is not the typical culprit. I'd say eating out is one that can sneak up and be over 500 bucks a month if you're not careful. Pretty crazy. But anyways, 
something as practical as simply exporting your transactions from your bank statements and seeing what you're spending each month and where. You can look at it and say, am I happy with this? Or can I cut back in some areas? I mean, people love, and I just did it too, to like peg coffee as like the big culprit. But like, if you get a $5 fancy Starbucks each day for like 20 out of the 30 days in the month, that's only $100. And like, if your rent is, let's say, $1,200 versus $1,300, your standard of living does not change that drastically. So that $100 spent on coffee, is it something? Yes. Is it the main culprit? No. And so prior to buying that truck you wanted or, you know, when assessing like living situations or, oh man, can I get a second roommate just to like really offset my cost? You'll find that by simply having clarity on what you're spending and where will provide you with such better intel to make like an informed decision. Because you'll see like, oh, if I change this lever, like rent or like a big cost, it actually has a really big, like drastic effect on like how much I'm able to save each month. You, you did, uh, you mentioned sort of, you know, non-school avenues in your last answer uh, of learning. And, and I, I do think that's important. Um, you know, students today, one of the things I tell them is that in the past, because so few people were going to college, um, college really was kind of a ticket to success. You know, it was just such rarefied air. Today, it's one tool. It's kind of the starting point, right? And, but it's, there's several other tools in your toolbox. Um, and you really have to, uh, it's not just getting a sociology degree, but it's like, how am I going to use this? Uh, what are all the different skills I can package together to, to sell myself and to be successful? So if you were talking to somebody who was a high schooler or who was a college student, and they were going to school for business or whatever, and they're getting the schooling aspect of it, right? But there's 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 non-school ways to also be learning, right? So what might you suggest? Maybe things like internships and you said reading books. I mean, what are some of these other things they might be doing outside of school to prepare themselves? I just got like the underhand softball pitch of <laughs> just to hit a home run here. No, seriously, I think about this so much. The number one reason I found a lot of high school kids choose a school is for the college experience, they call it. But what that really entails is partying. Um, and if that's you, um, you're just kind of like wanting an extended education. Now you don't have mom and dad to like be a helicopter parent over you. And you're really not, your mindset is not going to get much out of, out of college. Obviously the second bucket is also incredibly common. And I'd say most common amongst adults, which is that like one way ticket to success, or at least your first job where you're actually not going to learn. You're going to get the degree. And I'd say a majority of students that are not in bucket number one are in bucket number two of like, I'm just here to get that paper that says I did it, that adults that are wiser than me tell me I should really do this, so I'm going to do it. But your mindset is not to learn. Your mindset is to pass the class or even get an A in the class, but you're not actually learning. And in part, I, again, a big critique of mine is the education system not emphasizing the right things. Like, I think it is foolish to have us go through high school and then to get our AA degree and basically do high school all over again. Um, even like college discussion boards are a joke to me. I, I, I just have to say this funny meme I saw. I was like, um, college discussion boards be like, and it's like two plus two equals four. And it's like the response. Hi, Jeff. I really like how you added the two twos together to make four. Very <laughs> insightful. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is a college discussion board if I've ever seen one. So anyways, I'm saying like there is a fundamental flaw in just even the way that we're engaging with the material. 
that doesn't actually like incentivize teaching. And I just remember vividly cramming a bunch of information into my head, walking to the exam room, you know, into the classroom, almost like, don't touch me or I'll leak, you know? <laughs> and then I would take the exam, brrr, dump all that information. And as soon as I was done, I am, I forgot it. Literally the second that I'm out the door, like I don't even care. Like I just need it for this exam. So I'd say that's bucket number two. Bucket number three is like the very few that are going to actually learn. I'd say that third bucket is the holy grail, if you will, of like someone going to the university to actually learn. And if you do have that mindset, universities in general and just everything in life is like, you kind of get in what you put at, like you, <laughs> you get what you put into it, whatever the phrase is, like whatever, however much you actually invest is like what you're going to get out of it. And something that will make your education in a university so much better are all those extracurriculars that you're talking about. So like internships, crucial. Um, apprenticeships are even better. So typically it's better if you can to get an apprenticeship, which would be someone probably your mom or dad's friend, honestly, someone in your family that, that has a personal connection that can get you like someone that is going to take you under their wing. And you may need to earn it via running coffees and scanning a hundred pieces of paper. And you should actually be willing to offer that time in exchange for them downloading, you know, their advice. And you should always be like a yes man of like, like never say no to any opportunity at this stage of the game. And I just want to make a quick note on this. The, a lot, I see a lot of kids stressing about like getting that perfect job or doing that perfect career path, whatever. They're trying to figure out their purpose and their calling in life. And they view it like bowling a strike at the bowling alley. And I, I'm just here to tell you, like, throw up those bumpers and use internships and apprenticeships. And, you know, I'm going to try, you know, this thing, I'm going to try my hand at that thing as almost like the bumpers to the bowling, to the bowling pins where you're just bumping around and it's fine. This is a part of the process. Don't stress about bowling a strike. Just start, throw yourself into a law firm and be like, wow, I really hate law firms. They're really stiff and I hate the working environment and they're all stressed out and I don't want to be like any of them. Cool. Good to know. I didn't know that. I thought I was going to go to law school, you know, boom, oh, let's try a dentist office or, you know, I tell my students all the time, one of the most valuable things about internships is not that it'll teach you what you love. It'll teach you what you hate. And that's yes. really valuable. Yo, it's yeah. probably more valuable. <laughs> really. yeah, I think it really is. I don't know what I if love. You, if I you can't stand doing like something that. one day, you cannot stand doing it five days a week for yes. sure. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, internships can be six weeks or even three months, but yeah. it's been 30 years, you know, like, yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. don't, yeah, don't sink a bunch of money into law school only to find out you never want to be a lawyer. So anyways, so definitely apprenticeships, um, even over internships, but internships are better than nothing. Cause like yeah. you said, you'll learn the environment, what you don't like. Um, and then like you said, or like I said, books, books to me were the number one thing that like opened my eyes the most. The way I view books is that like, it is the best thoughts of the best men and women of all time. And the reason why it's the best thoughts is if an author took the time to turn their thoughts into a codified format known as a book that like they're typically putting their best foot forward. And so some of these books, I mean, these shelves used to be like lined with books. I was just chewing up books. I just could not get enough. And it like, honestly, it blew my mind um, and just made me think differently. So books, I would definitely say are like the number one uh, advice that I have for young people that are wanting to, I don't know, just have their eyes be open to just a different way of, of living uh, two books I would recommend. One would be Tim Ferriss's four hour work week was really helpful for me. Just like in how he, I don't work four hours. I work way more, but just his thinking. And it's also, I'll just critique Tim and just say his goal is like very self-serving. 
Whereas like the four hour work week is so that you can have fun. And I don't know, like, I feel like um, I've derived so much more joy by like loving people and serving them and like helping them that the joy and just everything, the life I get from helping people with the uh, margin I'm able to create in my fin- financial situation by blessing people is so much more satisfying than the craziest private jets or I don't know, whatever fantasies you have. It's just, but anyways, four hour work week, excellent for like, um, you know, getting you in the mindset of like, Oh, I don't have to have a white picket fence and work 40 hours a week in a cubicle all my life. It just breaks you out of the mold. And we're like, wow, there's a different way. And then the other one would be Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. Such a classic, very like just, um, good principles. I mean, you just, you walk into that book thinking that you're going to figure out how to manipulate and influence people. And you just, you get taught how to be, I mean, I'm a Christian. So you're taught like, honestly, how to be very Christ-like. I don't even know if Dale was a Christian, but I'm just like, honestly, these are just great principles for how to be a good human being and like, just listen well and loving well. And I don't know, like I read that book. I was like thinking I would learn how to manipulate people. I'm like, Oh, just be a great dude. And people glom on you. It's great. So books for sure, for sure. And then the last resource I will say, our very own YouTube. <laughs> YouTube <laughs> is so good for skills. I mean, YouTube and even like lynda.com, which I think got turned into LinkedIn learning. There's like a lot of other like uh, platforms out there that have like a bunch of courses on them. They're so good for learning skills. And even when I'm hiring, I don't actually look for college degrees in a certain area. I look for by and large self-starters because like what's so much more important to me, especially because we're still very much so in startup mode. So much, so much of what we are doing is unknown. Like what a person is doing today might be different than what they're doing tomorrow. So I look for that ability to learn as way more valuable than like already having learned. And don't get me wrong. I've tried to work with people that just either weren't there aptitude wise, but barring those that are not there aptitude wise, um, I would much prefer someone with like that's nimble and able to learn than even over that experience a lot of the times, just at least for my agent stage of my company. So having the skill set, and I would call it a skill set, where you have a skill of being able to learn well and quickly and and yourself motivated to learn, I think is one of the best uh, skills. It's the skill that gets the other skills, you know? And developing that skill of being able to teach yourself things through LinkedIn learning or through YouTube or through whatever. I mean, you can become excellent. I mean, excellent, like very good. Your masterclass, through uh, Udemy, through LinkedIn learning, through YouTube. Like you could genuinely be like a very good photographer if you just obsessed on mastering lighting, mastering just everything, everything that there is to know. You could be insanely good at it and make so much more money than like the typical nine to five mold will allow if you're willing to put in the time. So I hope I gave you like enough things that are practical that. Uh, no, that you're, you you're right. I mean, I, whenever I hear somebody tell me, and again, everything you said about college is, is spot on. And believe me, those conversations are happening, but there's so many different stakeholders and so many different uh, people in positions of power and, and you can do so much within the structure of it. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I brought my kids to the park the other day and uh, you know, I, I sat down on the bench and I said, you know, I said, play, have fun. And they just sat there like wanting me to, to entertain them. And I, I'm thinking to myself, this is college, right? Like you come here, you have this beautiful library. We spend thousands and thousands of dollars on licenses for journals. You've got all these professors around you. We, we offer internships. I mean, endless you know, lecture series and workshops. And, um, but we, by virtue of you being accepted here, you are not now smart. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like you need to make use of all of these tools. And like you said, all the stuff outside of the university. So, all right, true Tamplin, thank you so much. I think what you're doing is really important. Uh, there are so many things that we need to learn. And uh, I think we need to sort of ingratiate within the system. And it's good to hear that people like you are out there doing it. So, thank you so much for joining the program today. Oh, thank you, Lawrence, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet Take a liking to you.